Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. This year, in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the Engendered Collective hosted a series of community conversations to bring greater awareness on the issues of domestic abuse and gender-based violence. This first conversation deals with how we can create systems change and build a culture of accountability. So let's get started with Elle. Elle is our first panelist. She is a survivor, activist, and a multidisciplinary director. And I'm going to turn it over to her to give you more in-depth background as to who she is and why she's here. So welcome, everyone. And I'm thrilled to talk to everyone from around the country and around the world about this like super important subject. I'm like Terry mentioned, I'm a filmmaker. I'm working on a documentary right now about a family who struggled under extreme coercive control for a number of years and who escaped only to be kind of U-turned back into danger by the, the system that, that's designed to help them. That, and I'm also working on a documentary series about femicide around the world and what's being done to stem the tide I think media has a, a super important role to play in changing attitudes about domestic violence and gendered violence. And I think we have a, uh, you know, I think we have a very poor understanding or misunderstanding rather about uh, what domestic violence is in particular. And I think media has a has a very uh, important role to play in terms of correcting these um, points of views uh, by telling stories and by, you know, taking the perspective of the victim or a female-centric uh, point of view. And that's what I'm interested in doing. Great. Thank you, Elle. And our next panelist is Emma Katz. Uh, Dr. Katz is a researcher based in England, focusing on coercive control of children. And she has written many articles about the effects of coercive control on children. And she also has an upcoming book called Coercive Control in Children and Mothers' Lives, which is due next year in 2021. So I'll turn it over to you, uh, Emma, for more details. Hi, um, thanks so much. I'm really, really pleased to be here. Yeah, so uh, I think Tevi's said most of it. I am... I was reading the literature on children and domestic abuse um, many years ago. and It was all about children as witnesses, children as being exposed to something, but not something that was really a part of their lives. And I was reading that and I was reading Evan Stark's book, Coercive Control, How Men Entrap Women in Personal Life. And I thought, hold on a minute. The, the women who are entrapped, as Evan Stark describes, there are children in most of those homes as well. And these children cannot just be witnesses. They must be living with this control. And I, I did my doctoral research on this topic. And what the question that I asked the mums and children who I interviewed, I interviewed with mums and children. And what I asked them was, um, were there things that you felt that you can't do or things that you felt you had to do because of how the perpetrator would react. 
And when I asked that question, it, it tended to produce about 30 minutes of, of intense discussion about all the coercive control they'd experienced. And that gave me a lot of information about how children were being affected by, by the coercive control of the perpetrator, who, who in, all, in, in my research was always a male, can occasionally be a female. And I'm, I'm personally aware of one or two female perpetrators as well. But um, in my research, the, the perpetrator was always the children's dad. Or stepdad. So yeah, I um I've I've published a fair bit about this, and um as as Terry said, I've got a book coming out next year, which is um which is like my 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 book baby. This is my this, this is my pet baby. <laughs> Sorry to keep showing her, but she's just the cutest thing ever. And the book is my book baby, um and that will be coming out um yes hopefully in the summer of twenty twenty one. Thank you so much, Emma. And so our last panelist, Lisa Fischel-Wallavik, um, she, as I mentioned, has a health scare, but I'm going to read her bio, and she shared with us some notes that she wanted me to read as well. So Lisa Fischel-Wallavik is an attorney who has represented survivors, uh, battered mothers in particular, for 30 years. She is the author of the book, Traumatic Divorce and Separation, The Impact of Domestic Violence and Substance Abuse in Custody and Divorce. And she also teaches family violence and child maltreatment at John Jay's graduate program in forensic psychology. One recent paper that she just authored, which we will be sharing a link to, is called Battered Mothers and Children in the Courts, A Lawyer's View. Uh, it's going to be published in an upcoming journal. In terms of the article that I just mentioned, she states, one of the issues that I address in this article is the importance of understanding that coercive control is much more than physical abuse. In the family courts, it is important to identify the myriad forms that such abuse can take, including sexual assaults, emotional abuse, economic abuse, and physical abuse. We also need to consider the ways in which the family courts become a forum for the batterers, continued abuse through legal abuse. Analyzing economic abuse, we know that this takes many forms, including credit card fraud, identity theft, interference with employment, and the legal abuse of protective mothers. One of the issues I discussed in my article was the ways in which the family courts have become a forum for batterers' continued abuse of women, enabling their abuse and jeopardizing the safety of their children. Typically, batterers file multiple motions, violation petitions, and make repeated false allegations to child protective services and custody evaluators. In response to a post about the systemic problems in the family courts that have contributed to the legal abuse of protective mothers and their children, the family courts cannot reform themselves. There must be transparency and oversight. Without such public oversight, children remain at risk. So before she signs off, she wants to let, every, let everyone know that the response to her article has, very, has been very positive, and she's heard from researchers, advocates, and survivors from New Zealand, the UK, and all over the US, and to reassure survivors who are listening that we are not alone. The problem of the treatment of women in the courts is global, and we must work together to build a culture that is informed by coercive control as our primary definition for abuse. So before I get started into the questions, I just wanted to highlight 
this book, See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. She's a journalist in Australia. And that book that I showed you, that version is an Australian version, but the US copy was just released at the beginning of October. And so it's available now. And in that book, Jess talks about how public health issues in Australia, how it's dealt with, and they definitely have a systems approach. So the way that they deal with it is through three layers of prevention, the primary, the secondary, and the tertiary. So the primary is around stopping violence before it starts. Uh, The secondary is preventing violence from escalating. And the tertiary is around minimizing the impact. So we're going to start with the primary. Um, L, I'd like to ask you, when it comes to stopping violence before it starts, obviously in the U.S. here, we don't have as much of what they're considering in Australia. Uh, It involves education, bringing awareness in schools, in the family, promoting gender equality, and of course, the media's role. Now, you as a filmmaker, someone whose medium is using the media What are some of the ways that you hope to use your experience and your medium to make change in how we frame abuse as coercive control? And could you also define that for folks who are new to hearing that phrase? I think my, as a filmmaker, what what I would like to do is to expand the understanding of domestic abuse. And I think that the most critical thing, and this will this uh, comes from uh, Evan Stark, who wrote the, a sort of seminal book about coercive control that Emma mentioned earlier, is that it's not an incident-specific crime. It's not, a, it's not about a punch in the face or a broken bone or an assault of any kind. And it's never been about incidences of assault. That's a legal framework that domestic abuse, the entire response system of domestic abuse is now built on. And that is what first responders uh, will look for when they're called out is physical injury, firstly, and incidences of assault. And each incident is reported as a separate assault with no context, no history, which is, uh, you know, couldn't be farther from the lived realities of those who are abused. And so it's really based on sort of a male notion of what uh, of what abuse or assault is. It's not based on what, um, you know, a victim, victim's lived experience at all, the abused experience. And so what I would like to do with my documentaries and films is to show, sort of turn the tables and, and show the, the, the behind the scenes of what it's actually like to grow up and live in households that are being coercively controlled. And that's a very, very different picture. And I also want to say that coercive control is a systematic campaign of entrapping, isolating, exploiting, and tormenting and breaking a person down for your own purposes. It's a malevolent pattern of, uh, of behavior and it's systematic. And so that's what we have to, that's what we have to look at from a legal standpoint and from a, a cultural standpoint that it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pattern of behavior. It's a systematic pattern of behavior aimed at 
a personal victim or a family, woman, children. This um, framing of abuse uh, as holistic, as a pattern of behavior that is gendered, that Evan Stark refers to as a gendered liberty crime, where it impacts not what someone does to you, but what someone keeps you from doing for yourself. This is actually uh, a crime in England, in Scotland, in Wales, and I believe in Ireland as well. And Australia is actually in the process of trying to criminalize it there. And I wanted to just turn for a second to Australia, L, because one of the uh, uh, well-known activists and feminists there, her name is Jane Gilmore, um, she wrote a book called Fixed It. And it's really about, you know, how we report on gendered crimes. And I'm going to read an example from uh, a post of hers. So the original post says, slain schoolgirl Tiali Palmer's foster father murdered her to protect his 19-year-old son who was having an illegal sexual relationship with the 12-year-old. And Jane Gilmore corrects it. And she writes instead, slain schoolgirl Tiali Palmer's foster father murdered her to hide the crimes committed by his 19-year-old son who was raping and abusing the 12-year-old. So how important do you think it is, Elle, that we shift the language that we're using to talk about abuse? Well, I think, and I can give you an example of my own, you know, the story that I'm telling in my film, the domestic violence homicide that it's based on, the story that's at the center of it, uh, I think garnered one headline, and it said, a woman in the middle of ugly divorce found dead. No mention of a murder, no mention of a suicide, no mention of uh, history, no context, nothing that would blot, you know, what, that would tell you what actually happened. So part of what we are trying to do is take all these, it's a common event in this country, four women per day are murdered by a male partner and uh, an ex or current male partner. And so it's at once routine, but it's also a horrendous event. And because it's so routine, it just doesn't garner the uh, media attention and uproar that it really deserves. And so for what we want to do is try to, you know, pick it out of obscurity and sort of give it the, the moral outrage that it deserves. I think the headlines that you're speaking of is really reflective of how uh, marginal women's lives are and how male-centric and, you know, our media really is and how, what stories we tell and who gets to be the star and who gets to be forgotten. So Emma, I want to turn to you. Obviously, you know, we were both coming from English speaking countries and there's a lot of reciprocation in law and culture. What I have found from my interviews with the folks in England, uh, especially Nazir Afzal, a former Crown prosecutor, is that there seems to be more, I don't know if there's awareness is the word, or more at least accountability in the way that your country, Britain, is 
looking at crimes that are gender-based. So there's an effort to want to make sexism and misogyny uh, hate crimes. And I think that that's something that's really far for us here. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that. What is culturally your response, if you can, around the nature of sexism and misogyny as a cultural belief that you think your country is being effective in addressing? Yes. So as you mentioned, we are moving towards making sexism and misogyny um, hate crimes. Um, and a few police forces have actually gone ahead and done that. So um, in, in the police force in Nottingham made misogyny a, a hate crime locally, which, which is prosecuted locally. If anyone wants to look at that, um, Nottingham. I know about that because that's where I used to live. And um, our coercive control law is is an interesting one because it says that an offence has been committed if a if a person who who is who you're intimately connected with who who is either an intimate partner or a family member has had a repeated or continuous negative impact on your ability to live a normal day to day life. So things like seeing your friends, seeing your seeing your family, wearing what you want, going where you want, expressing the opinions that you want, just being able to decide when to eat and what to eat and when to take a shower and, you know, how to do your hair. All these completely normal things that coercive control perpetrators take away from you and and try and stop you from from making those decisions for yourself. Um so yeah, that's what the law is looking out for, this severe negative impact on your ability to live a normal day-to-day life. And that constitutes the crime of coercive and controlling behaviour. In England, we went for a five-year maximum sentence, which in reality tends to end up with a couple of years, which in reality tends to end up with a few months by the time you've been let out early, which, which often happens here. So for me, I don't think that is anywhere near enough to really address the scale of how dangerous these perpetrators are, because we're not talking about somebody who got angry and lost their temper, but is otherwise a good person. We're talking, as Ellie, as Ellie described, we're talking about somebody who's systematically set about to target and destroy another person psychologically and financially over months and months and years and years who chose to harm and to keep harming every single day, who could see the harm that they were having on another person and also on everyone in the household, including their children and their pets. They could see that harm and they were completely unconcerned by it. And in fact, they, they possibly enjoyed it. So I think this, that we, we, we tend to gravely underestimate just how dangerous and harmful and destructive perpetrators are. And, and I would like to make people more aware. I think that they're some of the most dangerous people in our societies. Um, and I'm not talking here about somebody who, like I say, is usually a good person, but occasionally loses their temper. That's a completely different thing. I'm talking about somebody who sets about to systematically target and, and undermine and exploit and belittle another person until they almost feel like their whole identity has disappeared. So, yeah, um, I think we have a long way to go. And I know that the law in Scotland went for a 15-year maximum sentence rather than a five-year, which is quite different. And seeing as England and Scotland are right next to each other, that's that's a big difference in, in approach. I think in Scotland, there was more political will to tackle these issues. Scotland's always 
has been has been very progressive in the last few years in in terms of of recognizing gender based violence and attempting to tackle it. Scotland also has some a really good program of support for um, adult survivors and their kids to recover. It's called Cedar, like a cedar tree, and it stands for something like something to do with children recovering from domestic abuse. Um, but Cedar, like a cedar tree, and that's a program of um, of mother child supports. And I think I think it would be accessible to father survivors as well, of which there are not as many, but there are a few. There are, there are a smaller amount, but they do exist and they're important too. And yeah, it's about helping the survivor parent and the child to, you know, overcome some of the harm that the perpetrator has done to them. You know, because we, again, as Elle said, there's, when we just focus on incidents of violence, we completely miss the the massive long-term harm that's been done. It's like, well, once your bruise has faded, then there's nothing wrong with you. The psychological and financial attacks that the perpetrators carry out they they leave legacies absolutely years after um, after the abuse is, it has been escaped from. Um, it's usually the survivor who has to escape. We had um, a, a presenter of a of a program that's a well known program here in England about crime commented a couple of years ago that domestic abuse is the the only crime that she could think of that where the where the victim has to go on the run rather than the perpetrator, and how completely ridiculous that is. That we expect adult victims and child victims to turn their lives upside down while the perpetrator just carries on their abuse, tracking them down for new place to new place and making them move again and again and facing no consequences for that and just able to get away with it. So that was uh, Viona Boos who said that, the presenter of, of Crime Watch here. Um, and it is a ridiculous situation and affects the, the children as, as as well as the adult survivor because, of course, they're having to move and move and run and run and hide and hide as well. So, yeah, I think we have a really long way to go in recognising just how dangerous these people are and holding them accountable because, yeah, at the moment, I don't think we're anywhere near that place. You know, you mentioned that ter- that that's part of the tertiary prevention, which is addressing the shelters and immediate crisis accommodation. Uh, But going back to secondary prevention, which is preventing violence from escalating in the U.S. and in places across the world, there are such things as batter intervention programs for the batter. And for the children, there is really nothing other than, at least in the U.S., because it is not considered child abuse for a child to witness domestic violence. It is not considered child abuse on an enforceable level unless the child is even physically harmed. So emotional, psychological, and certainly coercive control that we're talking about isn't. Um, And that's the area of your research. So Mm. we'd love to hear from you first as to what got you interested in connecting course controls impact on children, given that this is not an area that that many people are studying? Uh, yeah, it just didn't make any sense to me that we would talk about how the protective parent was living under this regime of coercive control and yet not realize that the children would be living under it as well. How does that make any sense? So um, I, I researched with mums and children and asked them about the child's experience of coercive control and and what I found was that where 
when mum isn't being allowed to to move freely about her community, um, when she, when mum can't see friends and family um, because of how the perpetrator will react so negatively if she does, then the children can't see a lot of people as well. So particularly younger children, you know, children under the age of eight or 10 who are much more reliant on mum to take them around and drive them from place to place and take them to friends' homes. You know, a lot of children's, younger children's social life is facilitated through the parent who looks after them the most, which is usually mum. So the children were living in the same isolated and lonely worlds as their mothers. Perpetrators don't tend to recognise their adult victims as whole persons, um, as independent persons. They tend to see their adult target as somebody who should just be meeting their needs 24-7. And something that I found with, with the perpetrators in, who were discussed by my participants was that they held the same view of their children. They expected the child to, well, one mother described it like this, when he wanted to play with them, that was fine. And and he expected them to just like magically switch on to, from go, to go from a state of having no attention from from him to suddenly oh he now he's interested he wants to play with me so I must engage with him and look like I'm having a good time but then when he wasn't in the mood when he didn't want to play with them he expected them to disappear and that disappearance meant not showing their face not saying that they had any needs heaven forbid asking for their needs to be met and just sort of blending into the wallpaper and pretending that they weren't even there and so they were expected to switch on to being affectionate when he wanted them and then disappear when he didn't want them and obviously this is an incredibly abusive situation for children and I think this this comes down to the perpetrator's um, understanding of what a child is because a child is a complex and independent being with its own wishes and needs and rights and wants and life and a perpetrator can't recognize that they only recognize their their own wants and, and wishes so they tend to see the child as an extension of themselves somebody who's there to serve and meet their needs or see them as a pest or as as um, as unwanted then if they don't want the child around at that moment in time so i saw some perpetrators were using their children as trophies like them forcing their son to to be incredibly good at sports and giving them you know verbal and physical abuse if they didn't win at sports so using the child's prestige at sports to raise their own status in the community and so they could go go about bragging about their son and how good they were at sports and some perpetrators like they would give their children completely age inappropriate tasks and then be furious and violent with them when they you know when they didn't succeed at them which they clearly couldn't um, they had very little understanding of age appropriateness. One mum described how her, her little daughter, who was between the age of three and seven at the time, would stand up for herself and would would argue back. And he used to say to her that she was, he used to say to his little daughter that she was bad because she was just like her mother and that he would knock this out of her. So he expected this kind of constant obedience, not just from his wife, but from his little daughter as well. Um, she was subject to the same regime of control. So if she showed any any independence, if she wasn't completely obedient to him, she would be punished, and and so would the wife. So the the ways that they saw their children was was very warped by their own need to control. I found that some perpetrators liked to lock their children in the house alongside their their wife or girlfriend. So we often hear about perpetrators sort of locking their girlfriend or wife in the house, but we don't stop to think that the children are in there too. 
when they stalked their partner, the children were there as well. When they were lurking outside the house or lurking in the back garden or writing death threats on the door, all of which happened in my research, the children were seeing all that. They were living in fear as well. They were being stalked as well. So the children were experiencing so much of it. And the this, none of this was the fault of the survivor parent, the protective parent, because they never in a million years wanted to parent in this situation. They were put in an absolutely awful context by the perpetrator. They were entrapped and they did the best that they could to, certainly in my study, they did the best that they could to um, to protect the children as much as they could. And most of the reason why the children didn't go completely insane was because of the good parenting that the protective parent was somehow miraculously still able to do in spite of all of this to some extent. So let me ask you, um, Elle, <laughs> the way that Emma described these behaviors, um, in particular, I noted the, the stereotypical father injecting his own expectations you know, of sports achievement and mm. accomplishment onto his son, et cetera, age and appropriate behaviors um, and expectations. These are things that a lot of people culturally might respond to and think that's just how we are. That's just parenting. And so back to that primary prevention of building awareness uh, for the individual family, what do you say we can do to help shift people to recognize that that isn't parenting, that's actually abuse? No, I was going to say there's so many things that if we came to understand the the kind of the reality of coercive control that it, either by example or stories or if we were to be enlightened about about the reality of coercive control that we would go about solving it a vastly different way than we are now for example we know research shows that there is a strong correlation between coercive controlling behavior and homicide that they have they are now working out there are researchers who are working out a specific timeline that unfolds whether it's in Australia or Britain or US that uh, domestic abuse situations or coercive controlling situation unfolds in very similar ways even if the details are different the abuse may look a little different that you know bespoke to the people involved but that it really follows a very predictable timeline that begins somewhere uh, with love bombing or and certain certain entrapment strategies, right? And it goes on to uh, systematically break down the person. Uh, I know torture language. Uh, there's a term called uh, prospecticide, which uh, mm-hmm. which really means that the person who's coercive controlling is breaking down and destroying a person's sense of reality, sense of themselves. Um, that's in effect what happens, and so so it's really akin to torture, or in that sense, is that you are they your person is being destroyed inside from inside out outside in and so we know that there is a strong correlation between course of controlling timeline and that it escalates as it repeats this has been seen it's proven it's studies and that if not disrupted it 
often ends in murder. It often ends in homicide. So if we can, if law enforcement and judge and court and so forth can look at, let's say, first responder gets called to a house where there's physical injury, somebody has a black eye or someone has been beating the shit out of them or whatever the case, that what they're looking at when they arrive is advanced symptoms of a campaign of terror that's been going gone on for a long time. If we if you're seeing physical injury, you know that you are downriver in that in that homicide timeline. And what the assumption that should be made at that time is that the woman and the children are in grave danger and that they need to be saved now <laughs> and that there should be an immense urgency to when the occurs of control or physical injury is seen in the home. That uh, sense of urgency, of course, is absent, completely absent. Crimes that would be crimes in any other situation are not considered crimes if it's made against your spouse or girlfriend or, or wife. So there is not just no urgency, there is a negative urgency, there is a downplay of it because it happens between a male uh, and intimate partners. So, so you're saying basically that from a, the, the tertiary perspective in terms of addressing the violence uh, once it's happened, that we need to address the criminal justice response and hold the people who are responding, the first responders, police, um, probably, you know, mental health professionals and healthcare providers Yeah, but I think well. it's, I, I think it's, preventative in the sense that we need a reorientation of our understanding of what this means. And I think if we, if we have that reorientation of understanding what we're seeing, then there can be a larger sort of cultural wave of much like the Me Too movement gave us from uh, one day to the next, a complete new understanding of sexual harassment in the workplace that we suddenly understood that, oh, this is a systematic undermining of women in the, in the workplace, and we could talk openly about it. In the same way, I think coercive control can have that same, you know, sort of uh, dramatic reorientation of how we look at abuse in the home. Okay. And it's the same in the family courts as well, that when we're yeah. seeing children and, and we're seeing survivor parents who are saying that they've been coercively controlled or are showing all the signs that they've been coercively controlled, that we need to take that extremely seriously and greatly reduce or, or preferably stop contact between the child and that perpetrator parent, recognising that that perpetrator is going to continue and continue and continue to cause harm if they're allowed to, and that a brick wall needs to be put in their plans for causing more harm. So let's exactly. let's address that, Emma, because you have written extensively on the harm that children face when they are uh, exposed to domestic violence and when they resist um, regimes of coercive control. Can, so can you describe what that harm looks like and how individuals involved can identify them? It's very varied. I think that the children respond in different ways. I think some something is very amiss in that home with 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 entitlement. So the perpetrator is super entitled and is attempting to make everyone else in the home 
under entitled and not stand up for themselves and just and be obedient and, and like a servant and children react to that in different ways I think so sometimes they become very aggressive and very upset and it come you know really comes out in a lot of anger sometimes they become very quiet and withdrawn and are not speaking um often they feel very physically poorly you know headaches tummy aches difficulty sleeping and and also we see children who for whom school is their refuge and the one place that that really helps them and so they become very good at school and they become super achievers they're the top of the class and they they learn how to talk to people in such a way that it charms them so they become absolutely delightful to talk to and academic high achievers and nobody would suspect that there could be anything wrong with them but underneath they are profoundly anxious profoundly worried and and confused and and not sure of their own sense of self but it's very unlikely that will be picked up because they've become so good at adapting so we do see children respond in a number of different ways they're they're often sad and angry and upset that all this has happened in some cases perpetrators are very good at manipulating children so that they become aligned with the perpetrator and and we're and are carrying out the coercive control alongside the perpetrator which is an awful situation for the child and the survivor parent um can you describe other case, what that looks like well so they might you know they'll be desperate to please the perpetrator having recognized that they're the one with all the power in the family so they might call the the survivor parent nasty names they might even get involved in perpetrating violence against them they might be highly disrespectful of them and not listen to a word they say and they might have a completely unrealistic view of the perpetrator thinking that they're a great parent and thinking that they're highly abusive and and you know highly abusive behavior is desirable and good behavior so then they're going to grow up continuing to think that this highly abusive behavior is desirable and good behavior with with repercussions for for themselves and other people as they grow up on the other hand some uh, some children don't become aligned with the perpetrator and and um, are much more able to see how abusive the perpetrator is which i think is probably is painful for the child but at the same time is is healthier in that they are seeing the reality of the situation they are understanding that abuse is not okay and that the way that that person is treating them is not okay and and some children feel very confused about their feelings towards the perpetrator and the survivor parent where some are really clear cut one one young man said to me i just hated that man and i just loved my mum and i just wanted to protect her so some are very clear cut that they they hate the perpetrator and they love their protective parent. So it's very varied. We see all sorts of different things. But I think at, at the bottom of it all is this experience of coercive control that the child is, has responded to and adapted to in, in whatever way they, they could at the time. So to summarize, um, you're, basic, you're saying that children who are exposed to an abusive environment um, they experience coercive control, and it could manifest in physical symptoms, health, uh, negative health outcomes, behavioral Absolutely. problems, and that these manifestations will have will carry forward in their lives, as you mentioned, in negative relationship patterns potentially that re- they're repeating. So potentially, it's this, but this not, kind of not always. Effect. Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. Yeah, and and it really depends on how how much help and support they get to overcome the legacy of coercive control. You know, if they get the right kinds of help and support, if they get 
you know, good therapy, if they have healthy and supportive adults in their lives who are helping them, if they, you know, if they, there's, there's various protective factors that can help them to, to not end up struggling in adulthood too much. But at the same time, if they don't get the help and support they need, they are likely to really struggle into adulthood. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, and, and of course, separation doesn't doesn't equal safety because the perpetrator is there a coercive controller and they've invested years in trying to control these people. They're not going to suddenly give up and stop that. So often children can't get away from that, especially if they're court ordered to keep seeing the perpetrator. So they're stuck with it for their entire childhood until they they legally turn, you know, turn 18 or, or whatever the age is that, that they're considered to be an adult. So one thing that I've said in my book is that we, we must give children who have experienced coercive control an exit door to get out of their relationship with the perpetrator, because so often that exit door is closed for children. We encourage women and 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 survivors to leave the perpetrator we encourage them to exit but we do not allow the children to exit even though they are victims and survivors as well and we must in terms of the uh previous reference that you made emma to tertiary prevention uh, how survivors who want to leave their relationship they're put in a position to have to be the one to move and to navigate the shelter system and eventually possibly or likely become homeless. Um, So they're dealing with themselves, their children, the economic disparities that already exist. So how can we start shifting this mindset that the survivor and children should stay put? Because now we have a whole framework where organizations and whole um, industries are founded on this idea of uh, homeless shelters which, by the way, is complemented by this idea in homeless prevention of housing first, right? Which is the idea that um, if you help an individual provide them econ- uh, provide them housing stability, then they can address the other issues and obstacles in their lives, the barriers that they face economically or um, you know physically in terms of safety, like survivors. And so if that is a model that's actually already being tested in housing, providing, you know, basically long-term affordable housing um, to address homelessness, how do we get, you know, individuals who are in this space, advocates, policymakers, to also apply that model to survivors? Either of you can answer that question. Well, do you want to go, Emma? <laughs> I was just going to say, I know Chris Sullivan, in, um, he's a researcher in the US, um, ha- has written about, about housing issues. And I, I don't feel particularly qualified to comment on, on housing issues. It's, it's, it's a little beyond my area of expertise. But if you were looking for material on, on that, I think Chris Sullivan's work is a great place to have a look. We know Chris. <laughs> She's our member. <laughs> um, but ahead, uh, I wanted to say something about, uh, again, like going back to this notion of uh, radical reorientation. I mean, uh, and about creating accountability, which is really at the center of, of the solution for this, is that we need to turn our attention to the perpetrator, to the offender. Survivors, women and children will be fine. They will manage their lives if they are given free reign to do that. 
And so what we need to do as a society, as a criminal justice system, is to manage the offender, to manage the, the criminal. And so how do we do that? We can, you know, I know there is a movement in the U.S. led by Laura, in the U.K. rather, led by Laura Richards and others to create a nationwide register for serial offenders. And so I think that's uh, the, the truth of the fact of these offenders is that it isn't a one-off. It's never a one-off. Uh, they take their violence and their course of control with them wherever they go into new relationships and so on. Uh, and so they, they, if we had some sort of register, some sort of law enforcement way of tracking the offenders, whether it's here or the UK or anywhere, uh, then future relationships could be alerted to the fact that they're getting involved with a course of control or... I want to ask you follow up on that, and either of you can can answer this. So there there have been survivors in this country as well, um, different parts of the U.S. that are interested in advocating for domestic violence registry, either on a state level or on a national level. And Mm -hmm. the people who oppose that look to the current sex offender registries and say that it's not working. And in in fact, California, Governor Newsom just signed a bill where if you are a sex offender, um, you can be convicted. But if if you have the, the number of years between the sex offender and the victim, if it's, you know, less than, I forgot what it was, like 10 years or maybe five years, I can't remember, that that person shouldn't doesn't have to be put on the sex offender registry. So in other words, if it was like a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old, that 18-year-old shouldn't be on the sex offender registry for having had a relationship with a 16-year-old because their age yeah. difference is within a certain number of years. And you know, then there's the question of, in general, not regard to um, sex offending, but it, with regard to domestic violence registries, how current laws such as mandatory arrest, you know, that came through VAWA, Violence Against Women's Act, um, have been weaponized against survivors by abusers. So how do we, why add more tools to the toolkit if the existing tools, uh, opponents will say, aren't working effectively now anyway? Why not just fix what we have instead of add more? Do you have anything to say, Emma? I don't want to... Um. <sighs> No, you say it's fine. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, I think uh, it's not a good comparison, sex offenders and domestic violence offenders. I think those are apples and oranges not to be compared. And just because uh, they are making mistakes in how they, uh, how they, uh, you know, mark sex offenders, it's not to say that uh, they would make those mistakes when it comes to domestic violence offenders. So that's one. The the other idea is that that's true. You can legislate and make laws until we're blue in the face. And unless there are like cultural understandings of what this is, uh, you leave it to cops or poor, poorly equipped uh, court systems by the way, in this country, in the, in the UK, not so much, Scotland, even less. But here, everything is so decentralized. We have hundreds of sheriff's departments, hundreds of police uh, precincts that all work in their own, are their own little fiefdoms. So 
you literally just leave it up to these, you know, individual systems to make up their own rules in essence. And so whatever misogyny, whatever prejudice, whatever built in value systems they run off, whether it's in Texas or Massachusetts or whatever, they're going to, you know, do what they what they do against victims of domestic violence. And I don't know how to fix that other than to try to make a broader sort of cultural change and get at training. Uh, Emma, did you want to respond to the training issue? Yeah, um, I think Susan in the comments just just said that often what happens is that the woman is arrested for defending herself and then she'll end up on this registry of domestic violence offenders, um, which would be a nightmare. And again, this is about people not understanding coercive control, people thinking that domestic violence is you hitting somebody and therefore if you've hit somebody even in self-defence um, or to fight back against coercion, then you're a domestic violence perpetrator. So I think we need to talk about primary perpetrators. We need to be, look, you know, we need, um, as, as Elle's been saying, such a cultural shift in understanding that people start to get that perpetrators are people who have been taking away somebody's power, freedom, autonomy, liberty on a big, big scale for months and months and years and years. And I don't mean little things. For example, I once heard a man say that he was a victim of coercive control, he said, because his wife made him go to the garden centre every Sunday. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, no, we're not talking so, so about... How, how is that not coercive control, just to make sure our audience understands? Well, was he free not to say... malevolent. Yes, it's not <laughs> malevolent. Was he free to say no without fear of, of being emotionally or physically hurt? Was he able to leave that relationship if, if he was finding it unsatisfactory? Was he free to raise his concerns w- with his partner without fear of, of her response? If, if he was afraid to raise his concerns, if he was afraid she would hurt him if he refused to go to the garden centre, then you would start to wonder, was this coercive control? But I very much doubt that was the case. So, yeah, it's about, some, it's about creating a situation where you feel like you can't live a normal life because your partner is going to punish you for everything that you do that it doesn't meet with their approval it's a you know it's a very particular situation it's actually ridiculously easy to understand and identify once you get it is it's really not that hard this is not rocket science but i think people don't get it and so often we expect the man to have more control in the relationship and expect him to be the one who makes the the decisions. The, there is a cultural expectation around that. So it's harder to spot that this has turned into coercive control. It, it, you know, it may look like a normal sort of man as the head of the household type family, a sort of traditional family, um, and people don't spot how far it's actually gone. Yeah, I think that we need this. We need this this big cultural shift. Otherwise, we will end up with women and 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 survivors. And, and and again, I say sometimes the survivor is male, but it is more there on these registers, which would be a disaster. So we can't. The 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 big cultural shift is so vital. So we have about ten minutes left, and in the remaining time, I want to give um, just. Oh, can I just question? say? Yeah, Julie Coates has said that. In the UK, she thinks that coercive control is only prosecuted if there's been violence. But I don't think that is the case. I think that, you know, I've, I've read that law quite carefully. And it says that in order for there to be a prosecution, the victim either needed to be made afraid of violence on at least two occasions or 
and it's an or or they had um their ability to live a normal day-to-day life was really negatively impacted by the perpetrators controlling behavior so I think the way that the, the law works, there doesn't have to be violence and there doesn't even need to have been fear of violence if your ordinary day-to-day life has been severely negatively impacted by the perpetrator and their behaviour. I think the whole point of introducing the law in the UK was to catch these perpetrators who were extremely controlling but not always that violent and, and extremely destructive but not always that violent and sometimes not violent at all. So, yeah, um, I think that's the way the law is framed in this country, that there doesn't have to have been violence. But often it's prosecuted alongside other things like assault. So they'll prosecute for assault and coercive control. Okay, well, thank you, Emma. So in the remaining uh, seven minutes that we have left, I want to give each of you an opportunity, if you can briefly just summarize, we talked about primary, secondary, tertiary uh, prevention, the need for us to work holistically to work all of these different areas in coordination to address culture, et cetera. And I want to ask you if you can provide a suggestion based on your own expertise and experience about something tangible that the audience members can take with them to do right now, today. If L, you mentioned earlier, perspecticide, believe Emma talked about um, the the language of coercive control being s- slavery. Um, it's also been described as terrorism. Is that a place where we can start? If we're talking about the importance of perspective or talking about the importance of, you know, sort of a cultural shift, then I would add that I think w- what has happened within the movement, the domestic violence movement in the last few years is that We've attempted as a movement, I think, to take gender and sex out of the conversation, to call it intimate partner violence and to call it relationship violence and not not name it male violence against females or male violence against women. And personally, I wish that we as a movement would orient back to and name male violence against women, because that is what we're talking about. And I say that because I think we lose a historical context that underpins coercive control, and that is the root of coercive control, when we fail to call it male violence. To my mind, I would like to assert that it is male violence we're talking about, And that is what we need to address and to then address the sort of the structural part of it too. Uh, Male violence in personal sphere, in the personal sphere, is supported by the societal sphere. And so I think we just need to be mindful that that is the case and to say, you know, it can happen to anyone or uh, you know, uh, one out of four women, but one out of six men are uh, abused at home. That is a result of gross misreporting and just not true. We have the UN reported in 2018 that there were 137 uh, women every single day are murdered at home by family members, 82 per day by an intimate partner, by a male. Current, you know, current male partner or F. And so 
we don't have numbers like that in the boroughs. There are no there are no numbers like that of women killing men. It doesn't exist. And so let's get honest about that and let's name it what it is. Thank you, Elle. And Emma? Mm. Yeah, I, I would say that um, we, you know, we, I think we need to shift our language around the children who are living with coercive control so that we're not describing them as witnesses or as being exposed to something. Because as Jane Callahan beautifully says, how can you be exposed to your everyday life? It's your everyday life, it's not something you're watching on TV, it's your everyday life. So I think that we need to instead talk about how children are experiencing and living with coercive control, how they're stuck under a regime of coercive control that is being imposed by that perpetrator. And I, I, like, I think that um, in terms of trying to understand that it's something that both the child and the, the survivor parent is experiencing, I like the term adult survivor and, and child survivor. And, and I think it's helpful to see the adult and, and the child as co-victims and co-survivors because they've both been experiencing the same thing from different perspectives and perhaps with sometimes different understandings of it, but they have both been subjected to the same thing. So I think they're co-victims and co-survivors. And again, we must get away from blaming the survivor parent for what the child has been through. I mean, that's so ridiculous. It's like taking two people who've been who've, who've been held hostage during a bank robbery and blaming one for the experiences of the other rather than looking at the bank robbers who caused the entire problem. If, if they hadn't come in and tried to rob the bank, there would have been no problem. So they're both victims, they're both survivors. And I think most of the time, I mean, not all domestic abuse victims are saints and some, and some of them have parenting issues that they would have had anyway, no matter what had happened. And even if they'd have had the most lovely, intimate partner in the world, they might still have had parenting issues. But for the most part, most of them seem to do an absolutely amazing job at doing the best they possibly can to help and support their child in the unbelievably awful circumstances that they face. And their their efforts to support their child, given the circumstances and the fact that they that that I mean they're they're being destroyed by this perpetrator, you know they're being eaten away at death by a thousand cuts. The fact that they're able to do anything to help and support their child is a miracle in itself, and and they're able to do so much a lot of the time. So yeah, very aptly put. <laughs> Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you, Michelle, for helping to coordinate the question and answer. Thank you uh, to all the attendees for your patience. We apologize for the technical difficulties today. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.